Well, we're in 1 Kings 21. Last time we did 1 Kings 20, we saw three other prophets come on the scene, all without names given. And none of them were Elijah. But he comes back on the scene here now. And in uh, verse 1 of chapter 21, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house for I will give, it you, I will give you a vineyard better than it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on the bed and turned his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel his wife said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now the palace here in Jezreel is one of Ahab's accomplishments during his reign. They have the one over in Samaria that his father had built. He built the, the uh, fortification there and moved the capital there. And they have a palace in Samaria. But he also built one in Jezreel. This is not just to be a summer-winter home situation. This is not just for uh, convenience or for a getaway, anything like, that, anything like that. Jezreel is actually a very strategic place. And so they built this for the purpose of defending it because if the area of Jezreel fell, so would Samaria. And so they needed to protect it. A lot of their water came from there. A lot of big battles were fought in this particular area. And uh, one, of, uh, one of the ones I put in your outline there for you. Oh, I didn't put it in your outline. I put it in mine. But Saul's last encounter with the Philistines took place on this battlefield in the uh, area of Jezreel. But there was a lot of other battles uh, in the Old Testament and also after the Old Testament it took place in this, this area. So it's a very strategic area. It would seem that the palace was there for when they needed to wage warfare or defend the country from this particular area. It would seem to be more in that line than just for a summer-winter home. Uh, some people thought that Samaria was uh, up, in the, up in the mountains and probably cooler, so maybe in the summer you go up over there, and in the winter you go over to Jezreel, but it seems to be more strategic than it does anything else. So he desires a property that is next to his palace. It's a vineyard. It takes a long time to get a vineyard to be productive. It does not take long to make a vegetable garden productive. But he decides to tear down a vineyard to make a vegetable garden. Now, it's his prerogative. If you buy a vineyard and you want to spend the money for it, I guess that's certainly okay, okay to do. Of course, he's using taxpayer money. So it's easy, I guess, when you can tax folks and make them pay for it. But the vineyard was there longer than the palace. So the, the, the vineyard had already been there. It was in Naboth's family. It had been handed down. And he didn't want to give it up. But the palace came along after, after the fact. They had built this palace. So they probably built it during Naboth's uh, time when he was there. And just decided, let's expand. We need to have some places to grow some fresh, fresh vegetables. Maybe they didn't have a nice fresh vegetable stand nearby. Or maybe he didn't like to go to the market or whatever it was. But they, that's what they wanted it to do. 
So um, Nabal cites his family history. The laws of Moses are even involved with this. They're not supposed to be given up their property. Once it's given to their family, they're supposed to hang on to it. The uh, year of Jubilee was instituted to make sure that people would retain what belonged to their family. So Ahab is uh, sullen at the news that he cannot buy or trade for the property. But uh, Jezebel tells him to cheer up. Go out there and act like you got it. It's basically what she's telling him. Telling him to be a man of faith. Act like you've already got it. Even though you don't see it right now, I want you to act like you got it. That's what we're told in the New Testament, right? We're supposed to have confidence in the Lord that he'll, he'll get it. Well, he's, he's supposed to have confidence in his wife that she's going to get it for him. <laughs> he doesn't, she doesn't say how. Now, there's um, uh, speculation as to where this all takes place. This, this does not have to take place in uh, Jezreel. It can take place in Samaria. Because Ahab probably does not do any of this bartering directly. He's the king. He has people that do this for him. So he probably, after building the palace, he said, there's a vineyard off there. I'm thinking about making that a vegetable garden. He could have sent a messenger over there and they could have done all this through messengers. He could still be in Samaria and never have left. He could also be in Jezreel and be doing this through messengers as well. It makes no bearing to the story whether he's in Jezreel or whether he's in Samaria. Uh, But just understand he could be in either place and this could still be told exactly the same way. So anyway, verse 8 comes up and she wrote letters in Ahab's name because her name has no power. She's married to the king, but she's not the king. She's also a foreigner. And that may matter to the folks there. But she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast, and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Take him out and stone him, that he may die. So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles, who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. Now we've seen this even in today's time, that people... Are, are put up to testify or to do things to undermine different ones. Uh, we've seen it on, even on a smaller scale when they go into a business, you know, and try and get the business to say they won't do something for the purpose of shutting that business down. Uh, whereas you can go with other businesses and get the same thing done, but we're not going to do that because our purpose is to shut them down. They go in here with a purpose. It's nothing new that is going on here today. It has gone on back then. It's going on now. But... Um, you know, even if they're successful. Here they're successful. Naboth dies. Apparently he is one of the 7,000 who hasn't bowed the knee because he's citing God. And even though the king wants to make him rich for selling his vineyard, he's going to either give him a better vineyard than the one he's got or pay him whatever money he wants to have for that vineyard. He can come out of there making, doing pretty well. But the word of God has told him, no, don't let go of the property that has been given to your family. Hang on to it. So he's hanging on to the word of God despite pressure from the king, despite pressure for money. For uh, If he ever wants to go back and ask a favor for the king, he can do that. Remember king? I always want to help you with the vineyard situation. Get your vegetable garden. Yeah. I need, I need a favor. He would have had all that, but he didn't go after it. He, did, he was not persuaded by these things and he stayed on this, this path. Now he died. 
No doubt about it. He died. And sometimes we think, well, just because we stand for the things of God means we should always survive. But history has a whole lot of folks who didn't survive. There's a whole lot of people who, who didn't make it through and for, who stood for things. You know, we think of the Martin Luthers who stood up against the church for the things they were doing against the Word of God and that he survived. But there were people before him who didn't. I told you one of my favorites was a, a, a man they didn't teach me in history class when I was in college. But I learned about him later on. Savonarola. Fifty years prior to Martin Luther. Didn't have any of the support that Martin Luther did. He was the Pentecostal of the day. He prophesied. There were prophecies that were written. And his prophecies came true too. And they were for years down the road. Some of the things that he, he wrote. He, he uh, spoke in tongues. He, um, there were healings. All kinds of things went through with this, this particular man's ministry. And uh, he denounced not only the things that Luther did but more because Luther really didn't go after everything there's a whole lot he left on the table that he didn't uh, pursue that needed to be changed I guess he just went after some of the the bigger things I'm not saying that he wouldn't have or didn't see them as being wrong he just didn't go after everything because the church in that day was doing a lot wrong in fact you could probably count more on count it easier what they did right than what they were doing wrong it was just sin was all through the church in, in that day and uh, Savonarola was burned. He was burned at the stake. And the fire came up. And the fire burned him up. And there were a lot of people who, uh, who died in that, uh, the, the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches. Many people died. In fact, one of the letters even said that some of you will die. Even told them, some of you will die. Well, glory to God, folks. If we get delivered and keep on living here, or if we die and go on into heaven. Hallelujah. <laughs> Just don't let go of what it is that we got. Because we know what's on the other side. If you lose a year, 10 years, 20 years down here, what difference does that make? We've got eternity up there. And I'll I'll tell you what, the reward that is there, that if you are in a place and you can give your life as a testimony, that you can become a martyr for God, glory to God. Good reward waiting for you. And that reward is only available for those who are martyrs. So they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. Now, the fast here is generally... I mean, there are times that fasts are, are uh, proclaimed throughout the land, in the, according to the word, in the children of uh, Israel's land there. But it was usually under when the land was under some kind of a threat or a threat uh, under, uh, threatened by a curse or some undiscovered sin. Maybe a war was coming up or something like that. Something was going on, and you would proclaim a fast to seek after the Lord to see what to do. But... That's not what's going on here. They're just kind of proclaiming a fast. Well, a fast sounds spiritual. Fast sounds good. Let's call a fast and let's uh, make it look like we're doing things in the name of the Lord. And that's what they, what they did. So they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. Just understand this, just as it is in this story, and there's other stories that are the same way. If someone wants to give you more honor than you think you are due, be suspicious. Be suspicious. You should probably not receive it. If someone wants to give you more honor than you think you are due, you're thinking, why would anyone want to do that to me? Don't take it. You probably shouldn't take it. That's, uh, even Jesus teaches in the New Testament. If uh, you go and sit into a banquet because they had different seatings, you know, high honor, lower honor, stuff like that. They said, take the lower places, let somebody come and move you from the lower places 
don't just take one of the higher places you're going to be embarrassed and have to go sit in the back. <laughs> and uh, he even told him not there. But um, Naboth may not have been, uh, maybe he was thinking, why are, they doing, why are they putting me in this place? But anyway, he uh, went ahead with it. They had the fast. They put him in a place of honor. That was to get him into the fast. They had to have him there in this place. And so they, they got him to come on in through this honoring type of a way. And then they had a couple of scoundrels who witnessed against him. Now they got two of them because the Word of God says you must have two witnesses. It says you cannot. I put in some scriptures in there for you. But you cannot kill someone on the basis of one witness. Now I pulled that out sometimes even in, in church government things. There are times that someone has come, very reputable person, person that has never steered us wrong before, person that has always been truthful, and they came and they brought accusation against someone. And you know, but I, I would tell them, I says, look, it's not a matter of whether I believe you or distrust you or believe them. This is what the Word of God tells me to do. I cannot act on one witness. I cannot do it. Even if I were to believe you more than them, I cannot act on one word of witness. You cannot do it by the word of God. Now, you think back on this, not, not yourself, of course, you certainly wouldn't give in to this, but <laughs> how many Christians do you know they get one person who bends their ear and tells them all manner of things about someone else and they believe them and it changes their actions towards them? You can not do it. If you do, even if you don't go to the part of executing them, if you change your opinion of someone else based on one witness, you are wrong. Cannot do it. If there are not two witnesses to attest that the thing is going on, then you can't act. You can simply say, God, we need two witnesses. Your word said two witnesses. If this thing is true, if this is what's going on, bring another witness forward. Bring someone else who can come up and, and can, can do Lean on God. But don't bend the rules. Because once you change the rules for one situation, well, you let them get by with one witness. You can't do it. As much as you, may, as much as you love or adore that one witness, it doesn't make any difference. You cannot do it. You have to have two, at least two. Word of God says two or three witnesses. That's what you're looking for. Three is better. The more witnesses you have, the better the case is. So go for, go for that. Just keep that in mind in anything that you are doing. If there is only one witness, how many times have we looked at the news and we got the witness of one video camera? And what do we do with that? I mean, sometimes people have a, have a fit based on one video imaging. You watch the NFL season starts up pretty, pretty soon. <laughs> when they throw the red flag out, that means what? There's a challenge. We go to the video review. When they go to the video review, how many views do they see? Two, three, four, five different. They have cameras all over. They're all focusing on that. We're looking at did the foot touch the white line, all this sort of stuff. Did the ball come loose before? And we're going in slow motion. But we, you can look at it from one view. How many times have you seen this? You look at it from one view and it looks like that's a touchdown. And you go over the other way. Look, Oh, that's not a touchdown. <laughs> the second view clears things up. You can't just do things on on one review. You've got to have multiple, multiple places. 
multiple things to do this. And so we see this in a number of different places in the, in just in society, but we also got to make sure we keep it in the, in the church. Look for two or more witnesses. So that's what they're doing. She's trying to bring in some of the Word of God into here to make it look like, you know, make it look like something that is not. She's not a worshiper of God. But there are people out there who know enough of the Bible to make something look like, look like a duck. <laughs> well, it's, it's not quite there. So anyway, we got two witnesses. We just got two. We weren't going to try for three because if you're trying for false witness, three is a problem. Because the three probably won't agree on some things and may even contradict each other on some stuff. And so two was, two was all we needed. Two is all we got. They said, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Now, that's kind of a general thing. I'm kind of looking for, if you're a witness, say when? Where? When did this happen? What, what's going, but it's not given. All it says, well, he blasphemed God and the king. Now, both. It's important. The accusation is extremely important. God and the king. The ultimate goal is the king wants the vineyard. If you just wanted to kill Naboth, you would just say he blasphemed God. But the goal here is the king wants the vineyard. So we've got to say he blasphemed God and he blasphemed the king. If you blaspheme the king, it's not punishable by death. But if you blaspheme, now it's it's told not to do it, but it's never told the penalty. But you blaspheme God, the penalty is death. So we have to get the death brought in there. So he blasphemed God and the king. We don't need any specifics. No one's asking for any specifics. They all just get all upset. You did what? And so we, uh, we go off on that. Naboth has blasphemed God. We saw that uh, not too long ago in the, the elections. Uh, one of the elections were going on. Remember the Harry Reid? He threw out an accusation against one of the candidates who was running. Hasn't paid his taxes. A friend told me. He hasn't paid his taxes. That's what he said. The head of the Senate, a friend, told me that, uh, uh, I can't even think of his name now, Mitt Romney hasn't paid his taxes. That's all he went. And the press was so, well, what, what is this? Have you paid your taxes? Can you produce evidence that you paid your Why is it all of a sudden on his to produce evidence that he paid his taxes no one else did? Why is it on that? Simply because Harry Reid came out and said that. Did anybody follow that after the initial thing? It was, it was atrocious what all happened with that. But no one ever followed up with him who the friend was. That there, there was a false accusation. After the elections were over, do you know what Harry Reid said? This was uh, not too long ago. A couple, uh, maybe not even a year ago. He said, well, he didn't win, did he? Can you believe that arrogance? Throw out a false accusation. One pr- not even a witness. Just an accusation. But see, that's what we've gone on anymore. Word of God says two witnesses. These are eyewitnesses. These are people who bear testimony that this is what they saw, this is what's going on, not some fly-by-night. Well, I heard. You get up in the court of law and you say, well, so-and-so told me. What, what's the other attorney say? I object hearsay. Yeah, like you, can't, you cannot bring in hearsay. You can only bring in what you saw because you are a witness, which means you saw something. Make sure you hold people to this on these things. Well, I heard such and such. Well, did you see it? Is there anyone else who saw this? Well, I don't want to hear about it. Sometimes we have to get that tough with people, folks. Because we're just, uh, things are kind of running amok on, the, on all this. 
So Naboth has blasphemed God and the king, got them all worked up into a rage, and they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now here's the reason why the accusation was, was uh, so important. If they, made, if, they, if they said something against God, they blasphemed God, they were stoned to death, and all their possessions were, were uh, accursed, and they were all dedicated to God. So if you did something against the king, they followed the same manner, and all of your stuff was given to the king. So if you were guilty of treason, your stuff goes to the king. If you're guilty of blasphemy, your stuff goes to God. Now they can't get a death sentence on, on treason or on, on um, just him blaspheming the, the king. But they could if they tied God into it. So they tied God in for the death sentence, and they tried to get the vineyard to go to him by doing this other part. That's why it was brought in in particular that way. So they had the deception. I don't know if I gave you this part of it, but the flattery is honor greater than you deserve, and we are to beware of it. Flattery is honor greater than you deserve, and we are to be aware of it. I gave you some references there. I wrote them in my outline. There's not a whole lot of reason to go reading them. But Deuteronomy 17, 6, 19, 15, and Exodus 20 and 16 talk about the witness that uh, one witness is not enough it needs to be two witnesses and the exodus is also a warning against bearing false witness so Naboth is stoned but also his sons are stoned because they are the heirs the purpose is to get the vineyard now this is directly against the word of God because the word of God tells us in Deuteronomy 24 and 16, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. That verse is quoted in 2 Kings 14 and verse 6 and in 2 Chronicles 25 and verse 4. But they go directly against this. But once you have the mob worked up, we don't really care if we're following the law or not. We're all upset. We all got good reason. And, um, and and so forth. I mean, we've seen that going on now, that whole thing with the, uh, the, the youth who tried to get the gun from the officer. I forget what the names of all the people were involved with, with there, but uh, he had just robbed the convenience store. And um, the, the whole the altercation, the whole hands up, don't shoot thing that went on. Did you all see that video that was floating around here recently of him violently acting against uh, another youth? Um punching them, beating them up on the ground, ganging up on them. Without, this was not a gentle guy <laughs> that they tried to pass him off at. Uh, and of course, they also you saw the other stuff that was going on in the, in, the, in the store. But see, people focused on one aspect of things. People focused on something, and even testimony of people in that, they said there was eyewitness, and it, was all, it all fell apart because it was an eyewitness. But they all got, they all got fired up. They were in they were out for something and they just went out there and they they did things to people they did things to stores 
They did things to people who weren't even involved in the whole thing. It was just the one lady I remember seeing her story. Her whole store was burned up and and uh, ransacked. And but people, you know, around the country gave money, and she got to be, rebuild the store again and do even better than it was before. But you get worked up in a frenzy like that, and that's what people do. That's what they did here. They violated the word of God. You cannot put the sons to death for something the father did. Nor can you put the father to death for something the son did. But they did it because the purpose was to take the vineyard. They set this whole thing up like the purpose was some kind of great thing. Defend God. Defend God's honor. Defend the king. has nothing to do with it. The whole purpose is we want the vineyard. That's what the enemy does, folks. It's what we do even today. We've talked about it before. Global warming. The purpose is not to save the planet. The purpose is to take over your home. Take over what you do. Make you subject yourself to more taxation. More regulations. Pay more money for electricity. It's the whole purpose. But they pass it off as something else. And you can find that out because the people who promote it the most are flying all over the world. Huge houses. I don't know if you heard about this, but they're going after your dishwashers now. Have you all heard that? They've been going after your dishwashers. They haven't quite gotten it through. But uh, I think right now the average dishwasher uses four gallons of water. And uh, they're saying that's too much. So they want to cut it back. So a couple of the big guys are making a GE is one of them. And um, I I don't know if I can think of all the, the ones that are making it. They're trying to come up with one that will do it for less than four gallons. But the end product, it's, it's not cleaning your dishes. So what you're going to end up having to do is to wash them twice or hand wash them after you get done. Mm-hmm. And what you're going to use it more water. <laughs> it's, find out what the purpose of something is being done for and you can unravel the whole thing. Find out the purpose. The purpose of this is one thing. We want the vineyard. He won't give it up. So we got to kill him. And everything else is a mask. Jesus was phenomenal at uncovering the masks of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They would ask a question and he would pull the mask off of what they were really doing. What they were really trying to get to. I don't know if I filled this all in for you, but number eight was, as the goods of an idolater were devoted or kerem to God, so the goods of a traitor were devoted to the king. They follow that same mosaic pattern. So we want that mosaic pattern, but we aren't going to follow it where it's not important. As far as killing the sons and the father, we're going to drag them all out there and do it all. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. Now, as I was reading this, I began to ponder something about Elijah. There's something different about the ministry of Elijah than just about any other prophet in the Bible. And I hadn't really realized this until I was pondering on this particular story here today. But in most other uh, prophets that we have, Samuel is one. We have um, even Elisha. You're going to see this with him when we come up to him. Uh, A number of prophets in the Bible, there was a prophet's fee. And you would come and you would consult the prophet. Remember when Saul lost the the, the, um, animals? He's out there looking for them. Let's go to the prophet 
Let's bring our fee and let's ask the prophet where they, they are. This was the common practice to go to the prophet and the prophet, you go to the prophet and the prophet would then go to God and come back with what the word was for you. I don't find Elijah doing that. The only time I can really think about Elijah having somebody come to him is when the widow came to him about the son. That was about it. Elijah is a sent prophet. The word of the Lord comes to him and he goes out and he delivers it. Now, Jeremiah may very well have been in the same category too because we don't really find anybody, at least in the word of God, coming to Jeremiah. There was one time when a king sent for him and said, Jeremiah, tell me again what the word of God is and he just brought back to him what the word was that God has been sharing to him. But generally, Jeremiah got a word from God and Jeremiah came out and he brought it. But Elijah in particular, he has a word and he delivers it. In the end times, Elijah is one of the two, is one of the two witnesses, as he said, we think the second one is probably Moses. But Elijah is one of them and we don't get the sense anywhere in the book of Revelation that people are coming to them to seek God. These folks receive something from God and bring it and proclaim it and tell it same kind of ministry that Elijah has. He's sent. He receives the word from God. Go and do this. Now you'll find other prophets in the Bible who did both. They were, they, uh, people came to him and then God sent them. When Paul was uh, born again on the road to Damascus, a prophet was dispatched to him. Go and tell Saul, who would better call Paul, tell him this. And there are times other prophets were, were done so, but they're generally intermix. Sometimes people come to them, sometimes God sends them. But Elijah, hard-pressed to find anyone comes to him to seek after the word of the Lord. Generally, you don't find them. Elijah's kind of hidden. And then all of a sudden, he just kind of pops up on the scene. And he's going to pop up on the scene here again. In this one. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. So whether he was in Samaria before and he's made the trip to, to uh, the vineyard, which is north of him, uh, I'm not sure how many miles. I looked at it on the map, but it didn't really have a scale next to it. He says, You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Remember what he said before? O troubler of Israel? Now he's O my enemy. He doesn't like him a whole lot. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Can we think of a single time that Elijah is sent to someone who does not deliver a word to them in regard to the fact that they have missed God? There are some prophets we have that come and they bring good news. They come and they bring glad tidings of things. When Elijah is sent, you're generally in trouble. <laughs> things are bad. He's bringing a hard word. He's bringing a tough word. And he's going to do this in the end times as well because you've got a whole lot of people that are, are doing things. The nation of Israel 
whom he will be sent to and be one of the witnesses for, the nation of Israel as a whole will not serve God during the tribulation. As a whole, the nation of Israel during the tribulation will not serve God. There will be a remnant in the nation of Israel who will. But as a nation, they will not. The reason you know that is because they set up the temple. They institute the sacrifices. If you set up the temple and institute the sacrifices, it must mean you reject the sacrifice. That you see, Messiah has not come. So they still reject Messiah, even though they're still worshiping Jehovah. They're still in the same, the same boat. As a nation, they will still... Uh, Refute, uh, not, not come on to that. Now we've we've talked. To, I, I don't know if I talked about it here or talked about it to somebody. I talked about it with somebody I think outside of here. But how many of y'all know that the temple has to be rebuilt and, and so forth? Uh, when they were wandering in the in the wilderness, did they do sacrifices? Yeah, sure they did. They had they, they wanted to leave Egypt, so they go out and they could sacrifice. So they did sacrifices when they were wandering in the wilderness for the 40 years, where did they do the sacrifices? In the tent. They had a tent set up and when they would move, the tent moved with them. And they would reset up the tent wherever they had a camp and they would continue to offer the sacrifices. What's to stop Israel from going back to the tent? How long would it take to set up a tent? Well, Israel did it on and off for 40 years. It didn't take longer than, it didn't take a day to set up the tent. It was pretty easy. Could you not set up a tent over there and set up your sacrifices? We don't need a whole building. They may do a whole building. I'm not telling you that they're going to build a tent. I'm just saying we don't have to look for years of, sacri- of, of uh, the thing being built. Because you're looking at seven years. Seven years tribulation. At the mid point, three and a half year point, they're going to set up the, uh, the, uh, the image, the obscene image in the, the tabernacle. In the, in, the, in the temple, tabernacle, whatever it is they got, wherever it is they're doing the worship, they're going to set this thing up. In the three and a half year point. It's got to be built in an operation by then. There's no reason really they can't go back to a tent. But anyway, that's just something to think about. Don't tell people in the end times they're going to build the temple because it may just be a tent. It was before. It could be again. So I'm just throwing that out there to you. Something to think about. Left off in verse 20. So verse 21. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. What this prophecy is saying is, I am going to take you and all your descendants and wipe them out. What did he just execute on the house of Naboth? Exactly the same thing. He wiped out that house. He opened the door for this judgment to come in. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. 
And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So here's the results that were predicted. First off, disaster, removal, and disgrace. Three things. Disaster upon his house. Removal. They're going to be removed from the face of the earth. And disgrace. When people think about him, they're going to be thinking of disgraceful things. Dogs eating them in the, in, the, um, in the city. Birds of the air eating them out in the field. That's not a good... That's, that's, to the Jewish people, that was, that was bad. If your body was, had that kind of stuff going on with it. Verse 27, So it was when they had heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his day. In the days of his sons, I will bring the calamity on his house. Now understand, when the sons come along, the sons do things to keep that judgment coming on them. If the sons had repented, and the sons had acted in a, in a accordingly, said, We understand what our dad did, and we understand our house is judged, but we're going to serve you no matter what. God probably said, you know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to wait another generation. I'm not going to put that on you. I'm going to wait another generation. If that generation had come on and said, I'm, we, we want to serve you, we, then God probably would have extended mercy again and said, all right, we're not going to bring it on you. We're going to wait till another one. But they didn't do that. The next son who comes up is even worse than he is. And uh, God has no problem bringing the calamity on. But here Ahab heeds the words of the warning and he repents. He isn't just sorrowful. He isn't just sullen. He repents. So the word comes and says, calamity is still coming. It's still going to come upon you, but just not in your day. And so Ahab is glad about that. All right, at least it's not going to happen to me. Yes, sir. I feel bad for my kids, but at least it's not going to happen for me. <laughs> yeah. Well... In this, we certainly look at this. Stay thankful and stay correctable. Ahab had at his disposal at least two palaces, maybe more. He had all the food that he wanted to eat. He had all kinds of things in front of him as a king. And yet, he couldn't get a vegetable garden. And he was sad. Can you imagine that? Having a garage full of chariots. Now you got the, uh, the Jaguar chariot. You got the Cadillac chariot. You got the SUV chariot. You got the Mustang chariot. You got how many, different, uh, how many different chariots are out there? All different kinds of ones for every day of the week, for what you want to do when you go fast, you want to go through this, whatever you want to do. You got a chariot for the occasion. You got all kinds of riches. Whatever he wants to get, he can get. And yet, one thing comes up. And you can't have a vegetable garden next to the palace. Well, it's not like Ahab is going to go out into the vegetable garden and pick the things himself. He has servants, and the servants are going to go out and pick the vegetables. So if the servants have to go to the next property over, that's no problem with Ahab. Why, is it, why does he have to get this one? Because when our focus becomes on the things that we can't have instead of the things that we have been blessed with. And we get into trouble. We've got to make sure we don't do that. i put this in your outline for you. If the enemy can get us sorrowful for what we don't have, 
temptation arises to acquire, acquire it sinfully. That's where sin comes in. That's where sin begins to tempt us because he's taking us look at the things that you don't have. Temptation will start with the things that you don't have. Look at the temptations of Jesus. The first temptation, bread. Turn these stones into bread because he hungered. He had fasted for 40 days and he said afterwards he was hungry. I would have been hungry during the 40 days. <laughs> but the Word of God said that after the 40 days he was hungry. <laughs> so anyway, after 40 days he's hungry. He doesn't have bread. And so the temptation is for what you don't have. He doesn't have the authority over the whole earth the way that the Satan is, is offering it to him. Do this, I'll give it to you. God says, no, I'm going to come and take it. I'm going to take that authority. But he says, here, I'll give it to you. You don't have it, but I will give it to you. It's mine. I will give it to you. Temptation comes from the things we don't have. If we keep meditating on the things that we don't have, we become sorrowful because I'm focused on what I don't have. Be thankful for what we have and let God add to what you have. Because if we focus on what we don't have and become sorrowful, we will succumb to some kind of a sinful method to obtain it. Temptation will come up. All right, now, you know you want that. Eve in the garden. What was the temptation? What she didn't have. David with Bathsheba. What's the temptation? What he didn't have. Yeah. You look at almost every single temptation, it starts with the thought, I don't have that. I would like to have that. How can I get it? And that's, you know, that's kind of the devil going out there, plowing the field, plowing the field, plowing the field, throwing the seeds in there. How can I get it? Oh, we got an idea. If you do this and this and this, you can get it. Oh, I can. Oh, I can see where that would work. And we forget what the Word of God tells us about what to do and what not to do. So be careful on all that. Be thankful. If you ever feel that temptation to come up to become sorrowful for what you don't have, just remember, stay thankful. We ought to get that picture. Who's that guy who does the beer commercials? Go stay thirsty, my friends. What's his name? Yeah, that, that's the, the most interesting man in the world, that guy. You should put his picture up there on a sign in there and say, stay thankful, my friends. <laughs> put that up there. Stay thankful, my friends. <laughs> just stay thankful. Be in that state. Just if, if you begin to think, well, I don't have this yet. Yeah, well, look what you got. I got this and I got this and I got this. And God has blessed me with this and been blessed with this. And, and, and look what I got in heaven. I got this and I got this and I got this and I got this. Stay thankful. Don't get sorrowful. Sorrowful is a bad way to go. And this is the picture of how you can go have all this stuff and still find a way to be sorrowful. Sullen, as the Word of God described it. Father, we thank you for the help you give us in our life to stay thankful. You told us in the Word to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. We want to be in that mode of rejoicing, of being thankful, being grateful for all the things you have given us, all the things you have done. We give you the praise and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.